This morning, we're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. This morning in particular, we're going to come face to face with an individual who begins to doubt Jesus. And when you hear that word doubt, you recognize that it's a loaded term, right? And it's multifaceted. It's not a one-size-fits-all experience. And there's likely people here this morning who are either struggling in a season of doubt or have that's been a part of their story up to this point in their life. For some of us, doubt grabbed onto our hearts and our souls as a response to a difficult circumstance in our life. Maybe you received bad news. Maybe, um, maybe something difficult, unexpected happened to you in a, in a big manner and doubt started to creep into your heart. But maybe for others, it wasn't something big. Maybe it was just a list of small annoyances over the time where one small thing happens, another small thing happens, and it just builds on each other. And you just get to this point where you're like, why does this keep happening to me? Like, why can't I catch a break? And you start to question and have these thoughts in your mind of, God, why are you doing this? Man, I can't catch a break. Why am I going through this? And for others, doubt might enter into your life when you most least expect it. This was my experience with doubt. It didn't come in a big moment. It kind of creeped in over time. So before I came to Civil Square, um, I had the privilege of serving a campus ministry on a college, and I had a front row seat to a really exciting ministry. We got to share the gospel with college students, and we were, had front row seats to seeing the lives of college students transformed, and that they would be, then be empowered with the gospel to go onto their campus to share that same message with their classmates. And I have countless stories that I can just sit here and just tell you about a life that was changed by the power of the gospel. And me and my wife got to be a part of that ministry. And part of this ministry is we had a worship gathering that met every week. It was kind of our big thing, similar to what we're doing here this morning, but different. We'd have a time of worship. We'd have a message. We'd have small groups and things after that. And in God's kindness, over those span of years, we, we saw a group of about 100 students kind of grow into be about 500 students. And we were just blown away by God's kindness and what we were able to experience. And by all external measures, the gospel was advancing, the ministry was growing. And so we would have these worship nights and they would end late. I mean, you're doing college ministry, so you don't, you stay up late, you live off caffeine and cook out. And so after you, and that might be some of the reasons my mind would, would not stop racing. I'd get home after eating a cookout tray and I'd be laying in bed and I could not shut my mind off. And that's just some way how I'm wired. I just continue to evaluate, what, what could we have done differently? Is there something we could have done better? What do we need to do next time? Giving thanks for what God has done, asking him to intervene in ways that I know he can. And then as I was, these thoughts would race in my head, and I can remember this so vividly that every now and then, it didn't happen every night, but often a voice would come up in the back of my head and it would be, say, what if you're wrong? What if all of this is fake? And I would just lay there in my bed at night, pulling on this string of doubt, and I'll just be in this endless cycle of doubt until my body was exhausted enough for me to go to sleep. 
And maybe some of you here this morning are in that space that you can relate, that there's a thread of doubt in your mind that you're just tempted to continue to pull and pull out of, and you feel like you're in this endless cycle of questioning, where is God? What is he doing? Does any of this matter? Does any of this exist? Maybe for you, faith is hard. Everyone at some level experiences doubt as you walk with Jesus. Some doubt God's existence. Is this real? Some doubt God's character. How can God be good if these things keep happening to me? How can God be good if I see all this harm and evil in the world? Maybe it's God's plan. God, why is this happening to me? And this doesn't make sense. Or maybe some of you this morning are doubting your salvation. Maybe you sit here, am I truly born again? But what about this sin over here? Can God really love me when he knows all that I've done, thought, and said? So what do you do when that annoying voice in the back of your head comes up and says, what if you're wrong? What do you do when these doubts swarm into your life when you least expect them? What do you do when faith becomes hard? Now this morning, I'm not going to offer you a silver bullet because there is no silver bullet for something as complex as doubt. And if anybody that tries to offer you a silver bullet and say, do this one thing and you no longer will doubt, has either never wrestled with doubt in serious ways or is just being outright dishonest with you. But this morning, what we are going to see is we're going to see an individual who's wrestling with doubt. And this individual might surprise you. And what we're gonna see is how this individual brings his doubt to Jesus. And we're gonna see Jesus's response to his doubt and how, and I believe that this interaction with Jesus in a doubter can be extremely encouraging to us as a church, but also instructive for us as we welcome doubters into our midst. So if you would pray with me as we open up God's word and hear what he has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a savior that comes and saves needy and helpless people. Lord, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that it would encourage us, it would challenge us, that we would see you in a new light, that you would be exalted and glorified in our hearts and in our minds this morning. So God, be with us over the next few minutes as we dive into your word and see what it has for us. Pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. So Luke 7, verse 18 says the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. So in the midst of all of Jesus's activities and miracles, John, I mean, Luke brings our attention back to John the Baptist. This is the first time we've seen John the Baptist since Luke 20, when the author of Luke tells us that he has been imprisoned by Herod. It's also the last time we hear about him outside of when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and disciples and they ask Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting when John's fast? And so John isn't some regular dude as a recap. This is a guy with a spiritual resume that is unmatched at his time. He was dedicated from God to God in the womb. He has personally received visions from God and prophecies from God. He baptized Jesus Christ. He, was, he preached powerful and bold messages. And later on in Luke, we actually see that Jesus considers him the greatest of all of the prophets. 
But this great prophet, this great servant of God is now in prison. And if you read Luke's account alongside Matthew's account, we can kind of piece the story together. In Matthew's account, we see that John the Baptist was imprisoned because he spoke out against the sin of Herod Antipas, who, who sought to divorce his wife and then remarry the wife of his half-brother. So you have this great prophet in jail and disciples bring him a report of all that Jesus has said and done. And now over the past few months, we've been studying the gospel of Luke. We've seen Jesus do pretty incredible things. And we've seen Jesus's popularity just explode on the scene. Large crowds are following. Everywhere he goes, he's performing miracles and teaching and preaching with authority and power that people have not even seen before. And not only that, he begins to preach an ethic of love, that we ought to love our neighbor, that we ought to even love those who hate us, our enemies. And he demonstrates this love and compassion by the way he interacts and treats those of the lowest sex of society. He ruffles feathers by preaching on sin and the forgiveness of sin and how he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He even calls a tax collector to himself, which is one of the most despised individuals at the time to be one of his closest followers. And not only that, he's earning a reputation as someone who drinks and eats with sinners and tax collectors. Most recently, the past few weeks, we've seen Jesus heal the centurion servant, and even last week, we see him raise a widow's son from the dead. So all of these things prove, I mean, Jesus has been busy, right? Jesus has been doing a lot of things. So all of this news is reported to John secondhand through his disciples because he is in prison. And how does he respond to the news of this ministry for all that Jesus has been doing. Read on verse 19, it says, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist, the great John the Baptist begins to doubt. This is the same John the Baptist that preached boldly about the coming kingdom and the need to repent. This is the same John the Baptist who saw Jesus and proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the same John the Baptist who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and saw the Spirit descend on Jesus, anointing him for ministry and heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the same guy who stood up to Herod, the Roman leader at the time, and talked to him and stood up to him about his sin. This is the same guy who Jesus deems as the greatest prophet. You get it, right? John isn't the person we would naturally think of as someone who would doubt. He's not your wishy-washy kind of person. He is always 10 toes down to the max. But is this very person who doubts if Jesus is the one that he's been waiting for his whole life? And there are some of you in this room right now who are wrestling with doubt. And you think it's because you're weaker than the people around you. Can I just encourage you for a minute that you are not alone. 
that John the Baptist, the greatest prophet in your Bible, doubted. There are countless pictures of people in this church who are following Jesus obediently that still wrestle with their doubts and have wrestled with their doubts before. It's not because you're weaker. It's a normal experience of following Jesus in this broken world where we have these questions come to our mind. John the Baptist shows us that faith and doubt can exist in the same heart. Experiencing some level of doubt is expected in this life. I mean, right now we are walking through the gospel of Luke. And if you remember back at the beginning, why did Luke write this gospel? He wrote it to create an orderly account so that we can have certainty in the things that we believe. He wrote it to increase your certainty, which means there's gonna be moments in your life where you're less certain about things, where you deal with uncertainty. Another word for uncertainty, doubt. The fact that you're wrestling with doubt means that you're still in the fight. So how does John go from being this confident, powerful preacher to being someone who now begins to doubt? Is Jesus really the one that I should place my hope in? Well, one of the first things we see is that John's circumstances drastically change. Suffering and hardships have a way of disorienting us and unsettling us. And John is in a Roman prison because he is faithful. He's been faithful in the little things. He's been faithful in the big things. And where did it end up? He ended up in a Roman prison. He's been languishing in prison while Jesus's popularity has been skyrocketing. If you put them on the chart, Jesus is up and to the right steeply and John's circumstances are nosediving to the bottom and to the right. John had gone on public record proclaiming Jesus as the one who was to become and now he is in prison suffering. Surely Jesus would care enough about John the Baptist, right? Surely Jesus would care about the forerunner. I mean, we just saw Jesus raise a widow's son from the dead. Doesn't he care about my circumstance? Isn't he powerful enough to bring me out of jail? Didn't he promise to set the prisoners free? What about me, Jesus? And hardships and suffering can do this to us. They can create a fertile soil for where questions, where we begin to question God, where are you? Why didn't you stop this? I thought you loved me. Why does this keep happening to me? And if this is you this morning, if you are experiencing a hardship that feels unbearable, if you feel like you can't catch a break, if you're beginning to doubt God as a result of the things that are happening in your heart, around your life, in, our, in your life, can I just encourage you with one simple truth? What's true about God the day before your suffering is true about God today. He is the same. He doesn't change. We are tempted to interpret God in light of our circumstances instead of our circumstances and how God has revealed himself through his word and in his life through the person of Jesus. He is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. And this is one of the reasons, many reasons why we gather as a church weekly. We gather and we sing songs loudly because there are people to your left and to your right who have this thought in the back of their head, is God good, is God for me? And they come into this place questioning, is God good, is God for me? And what they need to hear is the person to their left and the person to their right saying, yes, he is. 
And what they need to hear in those moments of doubt where they're questioning God, they need to hear the church sing loudly the truths of the gospel that we've been singing this morning. Do you get that? Your physical presence is not just for you. I mean, you're going to grow by coming here. You're going to receive the word. You're going to pray. You're going to encounter the gospel. But you coming here and gathering with this church is also for the person to the left and to the right who needs to be reminded of who God is in the middle of their hardships and suffering and doubt. Hardships aren't the only reason that John begins to doubt. That's not the only part of his equation. Not only is he experiencing hardships, and the one, Jesus, the one that he bet everything on is not operating or acting like he thought he would. So you accompany difficult circumstances with unmet expectations and together they make spiritual distress and doubt. And so Jesus was not turning out to be the Messiah that people, including John, expected. As we walk through Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, we see that time and time again, Jesus is not acting as if people expected him to. He's not fitting into the categories that they thought a Messiah would fit into. Everyone's trying to make sense of Jesus and everybody gets a, a, a sliver of the truth, but nobody captures the full picture of who Jesus is. Expectations for the coming Messiah were wide ranging in this time, ranging from someone who they thought would become as a political leader to liberate them from Roman um, uh, governments and so they can lead themselves and the nation of Israel would be in its rightful place amongst the nations. Other people expected the Messiah to come with more of like apocalyptic vengeance where he would come and judge evildoers in a cataclysmic manner. Very few, if any, expected what we see from Jesus though so far throughout the Gospels. For instance, John himself expected wrath and judgment and fire and destruction. He preached imminent judgment. He preached as if judgment was on the other side of the door. It could happen any second. If you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter 3. We're going to see and examine what John expected of Jesus, and we're gonna look at verses seven through nine. So the word of the Lord comes to John while he's in the wilderness and empowers him to preach boldly, and he's preaching to the crowds that have come around him. We're gonna be in verses seven through nine. He said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is saying judgment is coming. John knows that a day of God's wrath is coming where, where God, where God will judge sin and it's going to be severe and it's going to be quick. The acts of God's judgment is already in motion and it's not going for the branches for a pruning. It's going straight for the root, which is the life source of the tree. And he says, any tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Jump down a little bit more to verses 15 through 17 here as he continues. It says, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. 
John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Unless you're a wheat farmer here this morning, which I don't know if there's any wheat farms in Charleston, I'd be surprised if there was. You might not know, understand at first glance, this illustration of a winnowing fork. I didn't, I had to go and watch a video. It's pretty fascinating. A winnowing fork is used to separate the wheat from the chaff. So you would, if you're a wheat farmer, you'd gather all your wheat and you'd lay your wheat down on a threshing floor. And you'd either, I'm sure there's a fancy name for it, I'm gonna call it a big stick. You either grab, you take this big stick and you just start whacking the wheat or you can get your animals to do it. And what happens is it separates the chaff and the wheat. But then you get this pitchfork thing, a winnowing fork. It's kind of like a shovel pitchfork and you get, you get the wheat and you throw it up in the air. And wheat is more dense and not as airy as the chaff. Chaff's kind of like the outer coating of the wheat. And so the chaff floats away while the wheat drops down. And the wheat farmer will separate both of these two things. He'll take the wheat to use it for whatever wheat's made for, bread, cinnamon buns, all those kind of things. Or he will, t- and then he will take the chaff and he will burn it because it's no use to him. And the illustration is clear for us that when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, he's going to be separating the wheat from the chaff. He's going to be separating faith from unbelief. Faith will be collected up and unbelief will be burned in an unquenchable fire. And the winnowing fork is in hand. Judgment is imminent. John, you see, John is expecting the promised one to come as a judge, but there's one problem. Jesus doesn't seem to be burning up the chaff. Instead, quite the opposite is happening. The one to whom he pointed to, the one in whom he's putting all his faith and hope in, instead of bringing blessing to the righteous and judgment to the wicked, instead he's bringing healing to many. And it would seem judgment to none. Not even those who immorally and unlawfully imprisoned Paul in this prison. John had prophesied the judgment of the Christ was coming, yet Roman authority was still reigning. Sin was rampant. There was corruption in the political world, in the religious world. And in short, nothing has changed. Instead, Jesus is spending time with sinners and he's teaching about forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not acting in the way John expected him to. And his circumstances, his suffering, and Jesus operating in a way that he did not expect come together and it causes John to question Jesus's identity. Is he really the one? And all of this, and this happens to us all the time when you and I experience hardship, doesn't it? How many of you here are experiencing something in your life this morning where you're like, this doesn't make any sense? There are a lot of things in your life right now that if you're honest, if you were God, you would change, right? Yeah, there are things in your life right now that if you were God, had the power to change, you would change because it makes no sense to you. And it's in these moments where that voice in the back of the head gets a little bit louder, doesn't it? 
where you're just like, what are you doing, God? What, where are you? Why is this happening to me? And then all of us, what we try to do is we try to put God in these categories in that moment to make sense of him. But what if you never get to a point where none of it makes sense? What if you get to a point, you look at the circumstances in your life and you're like, I have no idea what he's doing and none of it makes sense to me. What if your perspective is so limited that you're never meant to understand all that God is doing in your life? And I think this is the position that John is. And you take all this together, heavy burdens, unmet expectations, and you have the fertile soil for doubt. And John the Baptist isn't immune to this human experience. But what does John do with this doubt? I think that's all, I think that's the question all of us want answered, right? I think we can all say we've dealt with doubt. Maybe we know someone who's dealing with doubt, but what do we do when that voice in the back of our head gets louder and louder and louder? That's what we're gonna see here in verse 19 and 20. He says, calling the two of his disciples to him, sent to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist takes his doubts straight to Jesus. Don't miss this. He doesn't sit in his doubt. He expresses it and he takes it to the only one who could fully satisfy it. And not only that, he had to tell some of his disciples about it because they had to be served as messengers. And we can often feel ashamed when we feel doubt, right? We can often think, this is because I'm, I'm not strong enough. If I was just stronger, I wouldn't be having these questions. And what we do is we try to handle our doubt on our own, but instead we just stuff it down and down further and further and it never gets answered, it never gets resolved. And then we get to a point where our, our, our faith is shipwrecked because we, don't, we think that we have to be strong and that to be strong means that there's no doubt. Can I say we as a church, if you are experiencing doubt this morning or at some point in your future, we would love to walk alongside you with that. Please do not feel the burden of having to handle that on your own because you're ill-equipped to handle it on your own. But together as a community of believers that walk alongside you taking that doubt to Jesus, we believe that you can receive some relief from your doubt in moments where it feels insurmountable. But maybe for you, for you, the fear isn't what other people think about me doubting. Maybe for you, the question is, what does God think about me questioning him? Maybe you're, you'd be open to share with somebody, but in the back of your head, like if God really knew that I was questioning him, if it was questioning that he was good, his plan, wouldn't he be upset by that? And so this is what we're going to, to see here, how Jesus responds to John the Baptist's doubt. We're gonna see the heart of our God with doubters. In verse 21, it says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Before we look at what Jesus says and doesn't say, I think it's important for us to consider what he does not do and what he does not say. Jesus avoids two common pitfalls that people fall into when they deal with doubt, especially churches. 
Some churches will either shame the doubter and make them feel ashamed for these thoughts that are coming up. Other churches celebrate the doubt as if it's a virtue to continue to be in this perpetual sense of open-mindedness and doubting. Jesus doesn't fall into any of those two pitfalls. He doesn't shame the doubter. He doesn't reprimand John. He doesn't make him uh, he, he doesn't make him an example in front of the crowd. Neither does he celebrate his doubt and applaud John for doubting. Matthew 12, 20 says this of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. The Lord Jesus Christ is gentle and tender with those who doubt, with those who feel weak. Do you have doubts? You can bring them to Jesus. In church, if this is how Jesus responds to doubters, then how much should we embody this posture as doubters come about amongst us? I want you to think, what would I want someone who doubts to experience at Citadel Square? And I hope at the top of that list is mercy. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. Sadly, this hasn't been the experience of many inside the church and outside the church. They've even been met with shame where they push it down or they've been celebrated and they never receive answers to their questions and then both end in shipwrecked faith. But instead of shaming John or celebrating his doubt, Jesus points to evidence, real physical evidence of what he's doing. It says, when the disciples entered on the scene in that very hour, Jesus begins to heal many people cast out demons and Jesus answers John's doubts and questions by pointing to this is what I'm doing. He says the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And all of these things are all messianic words that were predicted of the future Messiah. He's actually quoting Isaiah 35 and 61 here. And these are passages that John the Baptist would know well. These are ones that he would actually use as he was teaching and preaching. Do you see what he's doing? He's meeting John the Baptist with the word of God. John the Baptist is bringing his doubts to him and he's quoting Isaiah 35 and 61 saying, what was predicted is now happening. You have not misplaced your hope, John. Isaiah 35 predicts that at the dawn of the new era, the blind will receive their sight and the lame will walk again. Isaiah 29 predicts that the dead shall rise, the body, their bodies raised, the deaf shall hear and the blind shall see. Isaiah 61 predicts that the poor will have good news to them and the captives will be set free. The only element here that's not mentioned in the Old Testament prophecies is that of the cleansing of lepers. But if you look back at your Old Testament, the only one who, who had the power to cleanse leprosy was Yahweh himself. And so by Jesus cleansing lepers, he's equating himself to God with the power that God alone has. So if John knew his Bible, and if all these things and these incredible things were happening in front of his eyes, then why is he still doubting? Wouldn't this strengthen his faith? For a moment, John's sufferings and unmet expectations of Jesus blinded him to what Jesus was actually doing in his midst. And this happens for all of us. Suffering has a way of limiting our perspective to see what's only right in front of us. So this reminds me of a video 
that my college professor showed me. Maybe you're aware of it, maybe not. Maybe this will date me a little bit, but there's this, this popular video that um, uh, my teacher showed me in one of our, our classes. And I'm sorry, if you haven't seen, I'll have to ruin it for you. It's kind of the whole thing. Um, but if you have kids that are not in the service today and you want to show them this video later, it's a minute long. It'll be a fun watch as a family. Just type in, um, what is it called? So type in awareness test in parentheses, moonwalking bear. Okay, it'll make sense. It'll make sense in a second. Um, so in this video, there's a group of basketball players. There's four on each team. They're kind of in the still shot frame. Four, four wearing black shirts, four wearing white shirts. And you watch this video and you're supposed to count how many passes the white team completes. And so the video starts and everybody is switching places. There's a couple basketballs thrown around. It is pure chaos. And then halfway through the video, the narrator asks, how many white shirts completed a pass? And you're like, 13, that's the answer if you're wondering. 13, you're like, yes, I can count. And you just feel so elated that you're like, I got the answer right. But then the narrator says, but did you see the moonwalking bear? And you're like, what? What are you talking about? And it, and it rewinds the video. And in the middle of this, all this action, sure enough, there is a man dressed in a bear costume who comes in the middle of all the action and starts moonwalking and dancing while all the passing is going on. And you don't catch it because your eyes are on the basketball. That our eyes were so dialed into the basketball, we failed to see what was happening right in front of us. And this is true for us in suffering and hardships as well. When you doubt, it's easy to only see your doubt. It's easy to only see your hardships. And in those moments, we need someone to gently and graciously come up to us and say, but did you see the moonwalking bear? Did you see what God is doing in your life? Look at all of this evidence of God's goodness. And that's why it's so important to be a church where multiple generations are, are represented because there are people in different generations, different stages of life than you that can come alongside you and say, I've been there. But look, they have a different perspective on life. Look what God is doing around you and in you. Things that you would miss. And that's why we need the church. But what about John's expectation? None of that answers his expectation of judgment. This is the promised one. Isn't the promised one supposed to bring justice? Isn't this something that all of us long for, right? For things to be made right? There's something missing from Jesus's ministry that John isn't seeing. Because John never questions if Jesus is sent from God. He never questions if these miracles are actually happening. He questions, is Jesus the one? And how does Jesus respond to this objection from John? He answers it so subtly that you would probably just read over it and not even notice it. In all of it, in his response to John, he refers to these Isaiah passages, but he quotes them and refers to them in a very interesting way. So I want you to keep one hand in Luke here. I want you to turn to Isaiah. We're gonna see two passages in Isaiah, the passages that Jesus quotes and refers to. Isaiah 35 and then Isaiah 61. But look at Isaiah 35 first. And we're gonna be in verses four and six. So this is, this is what Jesus is alluding to as he is he's giving physical evidence of what he's doing in the midst. Verse four, it says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold your God 
will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now keep a finger there, flip back over to Luke 7 and what we see here of what Jesus is doing in the midst of John's disciples. When you compare this with Luke chapter seven, we see the blind receive their sight, check. The deaf hear, check. The lame walk, check. But what is missing? Jesus doesn't quote, and your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He leaves out the part about wrath and judgment. Interesting, right? Now flip to Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, we're gonna be in verses one and two. And this is gonna sound familiar to you because Jesus actually quoted this before in Luke 4 at the beginning of his public ministry when he was in the synagogue. And it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to all those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Okay, you can flip back to Luke 7 and compare these things. Again, what, what do we see? We see the good news preached to the poor, check. But what do we not see? We don't see the end of verse two, the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus omits the day of vengeance or judgment again. And like I mentioned, this will sound familiar to you. So now that you're in Luke 7, Look at Luke 4. I promise this will be the last time I flipped, flip around and make you do the Bible drill. Luke 4, verses 18 through 19. Again, this is, this is Jesus at the beginning of his, of his public ministry. He enters into the synagogue, grabs a scroll, a scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from this scroll. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind to set liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But notice what he does. He doesn't finish verse two. He, he leaves out the day of vengeance. He stops at proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the intendant. What is he doing here? Jesus is taking John the Baptist back to the very passages that give him hope for justice and saying, your expectations for justice are not wrong. They're there. But what he is showing John is that he has the wrong timing of when these judgments and when this justice will take place. He's giving, when he quotes Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, he's tipping his hat. He's saying, I'm not coming in judgment this time. I'm coming as a savior. He came as a savior. This is not the time to execute judgment and doom. Instead, it's time to share good news to the poor. Good news to those who are incapable of saving themselves. Jesus isn't operating on the timeline that John had in his head there will be a day when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, but today he comes as a savior. He says, I come to bring good news and salvation to those who are weak. 
and unable. This time I come to be judged in the place of sinners instead of judging sinners. But be comforted, John, that day is coming. All wrongs will be made right. All suffering will be worth it. All tears will be wiped away. All injustice and evil will be annihilated. And some of you are in the same position that John is this moment, that there is an area in your life and you're waiting for God to come through and fix it. There are prayers that you've spoken in tears, in despair, asking God to intervene, to make things right. And you're saying, none of this makes sense. Why is God delaying the help that I so desperately want and that he so desperately promised me? I just wanna encourage you this morning that you don't need to understand how God is working for your good to know that he is. We often think that if we can't think of a good reason for why God might be doing something in our life, then there must not be a good reason at all. But we have hope in, Rome, in Romans 8, 28, says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's this very belief, this very posture of trusting when it doesn't make sense is what Jesus alludes to at the end of this passage in verse 23. He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus ends his response to John with the beatitude. He offers a promised blessing to those who are not offended by him. The word here, fin, literally means to slip away or to fall. Jesus is saying, blessed or happy is the one who does not slip away or fall away on account of me. There are some here this morning who are struggling to hold on to the belief of Jesus and your doubts feel overwhelming and insurmountable. You don't understand what Jesus is doing in your life. It doesn't make sense. And what Jesus says, he says, keep trusting me. Keep trusting me when it doesn't make sense. Keep trusting and following him when he doesn't meet your expectations. Happy is the one who continues to trust Jesus in the midst of doubt. Blessed are those who continue to believe in him when they experience some doubt along the way. Just as John brings his doubts to Jesus and to the word, let us bring ours. Do you have doubts? Bring them to Jesus. Do you have questions? Raise them to the scriptures. If you're wrestling with doubt here this morning, I wanna encourage you by reminding you that you are still in the fight. And I want to remind you that your salvation was never connected to the strength of your faith. The security of your salvation was always connected to the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. A weak faith saves just as much as a strong faith. Because what saves us is not our faith or the relative strength of it, but what saves us is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. Tim Keller has this great illustration that will capture this idea a lot better than I, I would. So we'll, we'll end with that. He says, imagine a frozen lake and you have two individuals and you have to get to the other side of this lake. You have one individual who's confident that this, this ice will hold him up. But then you have another individual who's worried and scared. Is this ice thick enough to hold me up? He says, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you believe about the ice. What matters is at the end of the day, is the ice strong enough to hold you up? Because you can have all the faith in the world that this ice will hold you up and you start running across it and it cracks and you fall in and you look like an idiot. Or you can like many of us, 
tremble with fear with every step along the way, feeling weak, not sure, but with each step, your faith grows a little bit more. Okay, this, this ice is holding me up. And then before you know it, you're at the end of the lake where you wanted to be. And it's not because of your faith in the ice, it's because the faith, the ice was strong enough to hold you up. That guys, there is a blessing at the other side. It is promised by Jesus Christ. So if you're doubting this morning, and I know it's scary to continue to take those steps of faith, not knowing what Jesus is doing in your life, not knowing if all of this makes sense, but continue, look to Jesus, bring your doubts to Jesus. He is a strong and willing savior. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Keep wrestling, keep believing, especially when you feel doubt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our security in this life is not in the relative strength of our faith or in our ability to answer all the questions that we have. But God, we thank you that you are a God that welcomes doubters. We are, we are thankful that you are a God who doesn't shame us, that you are a God that points us to evidence of what you are doing that you are a God who can be trusted, that you are a willing and strong savior when we feel weak. So God, for those who are doubting here this morning or those who will doubt, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage them by your spirit, that you would strengthen them, that you would remind them of what is true. And Lord, I pray that as we sing loudly this last song, Lord, I pray that our faith would be strengthened and that our hope will be restored. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Thank you.